Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. My guest today is a professor of technology management at the University of Pretoria, and we'll ask him what that means. But I've invited Professor David Walwyn to join us because he has a somewhat different take on the issue of ESCOM and the shortage of uh, electricity in, in South Africa. And, uh, you know, for us laymen, and hopefully he'll take that into account, that is probably one of the most, one of the most pressing issues for the ordinary South African to deal with. And it particularly concerns our attractiveness as an investment destination. The, uh, our electricity supply or the lack thereof. Professor Wilwyn, welcome to the IRR show. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me on the show and good morning to your listeners. Thanks very much. What, 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 what do you do? What is your job as Professor of, of Technology? And I work at the Graduate School of Technology Management at the University of Pretoria. I'm a professor there and um, my field of research is sustainability transition. So I'm interested in the transformation of what we call socio-technical systems. These may be systems of mobility or transport, systems of energy production, systems of food production, systems of manufacture, um, to make them more sustainable. So, I mean, a big topic at the moment is the decarbonization of energy. How do we devise and develop energy systems which don't fill our atmospheres with carbon dioxide and cause a climate crisis. And uh, I mean, it, broadly, it's a mixture of technology, political studies or political science or political theory, so what we call social construction of technology. It's a very interdisciplinary area. And I, yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Mm. Okay, well, what drew, drew me, draw you to my attention was an article that first appeared uh, in the conversation and then in business. And it essentially has the heading of Surprise Sparks of Hope in Essays Darkness. Um, now, I know you probably didn't write the heading, but maybe you did. You please give us an idea of why there are sparks of hope in our darkness and what, 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 what will keep the power going? Because we get the sense that you know, the, the power is about to disappear from our lives in, in toto and people are starting to are panicking or just feeling very ill at ease. Over the, over the power issue at the moment? I definitely didn't write the headline. That was a business headline. <laughs> it was interesting. The original headline to my story was solar saves the day but cannot save the night. And I suppose there's just a bit of play on words. But I was asked to write that article by the conversation initially. And they said, well, there'd been this announcement by Jan Oberholzer, who's the mm -hmm. CEO of Eskom, saying that we need to get a move on with the build program, because if we don't, we will be in, a, in much bigger trouble than we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, the, the business interpretation was interesting. I think it, the surprise news was, first of all, that there's a lot about load shedding in the media. Um, it's a very intense topic, not surprisingly. But actually, it's a very small proportion of the total electricity usage in the country. Load shedding is typically about 2% of the overall usage. So it's actually a small component. 98% of the time, Eskom delivers power and we're able to continue with the kinds of things that we do with that, all that electricity. So maybe that was... 
just it was a, a, a sort of somewhat surprising result is that we have in some ways blown this issue out of it out of proportion but of course when you don't have power you know it means everything to you mm -hmm. so uh, i would be the last person to say well this is you know making a mountain out of a molehill mm -hmm. um i think the other aspect is that actually Eskom has the capacity to resolve this problem if it's a stage two um, load shedding, which means mm -hmm. that it lacks two gigawatts capacity in the system. Um, and the reason that I say that is that at the moment, it's really a peak power issue. So in the late afternoon and early evening, suddenly there's this surge in demand um, and the that surge in demand cannot be met within Eskom's existing infrastructure, their capacity, but they could meet it if they were able to recharge their pumped hydro schemes um, during the, basically during the evening. And so if there was more energy in the system, then we would have the power capacity to meet the peak power demand. Okay. And uh, uh, sorry, uh, can, I, can I just ask you, yeah. that, um, you talk about uh, sort of hydro capacity and I've wondered about that, but, you know, I haven't, I haven't sort of delved into it much further. Can you give us a, an idea of what, what, what it means by hydro, you know, hydropower and, what, and how it could assist the provision of electricity? And would, would a, is, is a, a dam like Stokefontein or that, the power station, power pump in that area, the sort of operation that, that, that would be involved in this? Exactly. So that is one of the pumped hydro schemes. So here we're talking about pumped hydro, not hydroelectric in general, right. um, and the way that pumped hydro works. And it was a visionary approach by Eskom, not alone in the world. There are other countries that do it. But essentially, Eskom in the 80s and 90s built excess capacity in respect of coal. Um, so we had all these coal power stations. And the idea was that we would use the additional capacity in coal, um, especially during the night when there's a low demand on the system, we would use that additional power to pump water um, up the Drakensberg um, mm -hmm. and other places, but mainly up the Drakensberg. And Eskom then built these pumped hydro schemes. So the way that they work is that during the night, they pump the water up the escarpment. And then during the day, when there's um, lots of demand, they let the water down. And that flattens the demand curve for electricity in the country. And it means that we don't need some of the more expensive technologies, such as for gas, which is very expensive, mm -hmm. or diesel, which is also very expensive. They also put in diesel um, uh, diesel schemes. So we do have some open cycle um, gas turbines which work on diesel. But pumped hydro, we have 2.7 gigawatts of pumped hydro, which is a significant amount. And essentially it enables Eskom to very quickly respond to increases in demand within the grid and deliver um, reliable power. So flatten the demand and then deliver this instantaneous demand as the demand picks up in the evening. David, just I suppose the, the, the obvious question is, is ESCOM using pumped hydro? And if not, why not? So at the moment, they are using pumped hydro. And I think that was the point that I made in the beginning was that 
Actually, there's additional capacity in the pumped hydro, so we're not using it to its full extent. Right. And I mean, I don't uh, work for Eskimo or know the details of how they manage pumped hydro relative to the overall scheme. But there's about another 1.7 gigawatts that they're not using, which they could use in the evening. And I think the limitation is that they're simply not getting enough energy into the system so they can't pump water enough water mm -hmm. up the hill up the hill during the night mm -hmm. and so they can't let it down fast enough during the day and that's the issue really mm -hmm. so if we had more energy we could pump more water and then we could meet the this peak demand in the mm -hmm. early evening so i think that was the other point that were in the business they said um, there were sparks of hope is that there is this capacity but i also think that in a way, what we're looking for is two to four gigawatts of additional capacity, and it's slowly starting to materialize. So there was an announcement early uh, last week on this one of the first projects under the Risk Mitigation Independent Power Producers Procurement Program for the installation of, uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it was 160 megawatts of capacity. Mm -hmm. So we're slowly getting there. But in fact, the biggest problem is that we're still reliant on what I would call these antique power plants. So mm -hmm. some of them built in the 60s and 70s and 80s that are way beyond their lifetimes. And they, they still operate, but not, they operate not only unreliably, but also in contravention of the environmental legislation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a bit like... Uh, you, know, I, you would be driving a second-hand vehicle and the police stop you and say, we want to do a roadworthy check and you and they discover that your brakes aren't working and you say, well, you know, don't find me or you know, don't impound the car because I don't have the money to fix it and I'll fix it tomorrow. And the meanwhile, you're a danger to everyone else on the road. And that's exactly the situation with Eskom's power plants, the old ones. They are a danger to all of us, but they keep running because we can't afford to shut them down. And we really do need to shut them down. And that was the point that Oberholzer was making, is that we have to get a move on with the mm. build program so that we can now mothball and um, take offline forever mm. these old power stations that are poisoning us. I don't know. Can I, would, 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 were Madupi and Kusile intended to take over? from these antique power stations? They were, and that's also unfortunately part of the problem. So the, this power crisis thing started in 2009, and then we embarked yeah. on Madupi and Kosile, and we thought, well, these are you know massive power installations. We'll never have a power problem again. Mm. Um, and not only that, but they're kind of based on clean coal technology. So they mm. are air-cooled, not water-cooled. They don't use water. And they have flue gas desulfurization. Mm -hmm. So they meet modern environmental emissions criteria. Right. But of course, that's that was the intention in the design. And that's what has not turned out. Madupi has been prone to failure. It has a high level of breakdowns. Um, it's untested technology at that scale. And you could say the same for Kosile, although Kosile seems to be coming online now, way, mm -hmm. way uh, behind schedule. So Madupi and Cosilia are our new cars. They are Ferraris, but they don't work. Um, and that's the problem. So we have these antique cars in the system, which we rely on, and they can only go very slowly and dangerously. And then we have these new cars, which they should be able to, you know, really 
go around the track quickly, but unfortunately, they are still at half, you know, they, I don't know what the word would be, but they're not terribly reliable at this point. For a whole lot of reasons one doesn't even want to go into. I have seen Madupi, it's, it's massive. It's, it's, I'm not sure I'd like to live near it, just because it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite creepy. Can I ask you then, you talk about, in the, in the article, you talk about uh, South Africa's power supply and demand trends. Um, and that's quite intriguing because the you say the dif- difference in demand is, is staggering from uh, 2021 to 2022. Um, what, 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 what are your findings on, on the change in demand versus the supply and what effect it will have on ESCOM? So first of all, um, let me say that the overall demand is down, uh, in my view, about 8%. Mm-hmm. So if we look 2021 to 2022, demand is down about 8%, of which 2% is due to load shedding. So mm-hmm. actual demand is down 6%. Um, but the thing that intrigued me was that the peak demand, which is this peak in the evenings, is down mm-hmm. by 6 gigawatts. Not, uh, not on average, there are moments when it's down six gigawatts. And that was what I was saying in the article is that six gigawatts out of a total of 35 gigawatts is about 20% or 30 gigawatts is about 20%. And so that's a 20% drop in peak demand, mm-hmm. which is huge for the utility and suggests a number of things. First of all, it suggests people are making other plans, mm-hmm. um, which we know they are. Um, big companies are making other plans as well as private homes. But the other is that, uh, and of course, this is an aspect that is, uh, you know, in the constitutional court, but Eskom is cutting off areas which are not um, paying. And these would have been consumers who would, would may typically be working and they come home, they switch on their uh, ovens and their kettles and their heaters, and that's the peak demand in the evening. Um, and so the, a lot of those, uh, a lot, you know, some of those consumers have been disconnected. And so that's partly the reason for the drop in peak demand. That's interesting, because I assume then that it's the, cons- the ordinary consumers, the demand is lowering, but the, the, industrial consu- the industrial consumers would still be operating at their normal levels of demand. Yeah, I think that's actually, that's correct. I mean, I think that, um, but some industrial consumers have made alternative plans. And so they become independent power producers. So that's the overall drop of um, six to 8% Mm. is that uh, Eskom has lost some big load consumers as a consequence Mm. of the licensing of independent power producers. And that's, I mean, it's an un- if you look at the uh, planning documents, like the Integrated Resource mm. Plan, the IRP, mm. um, none of these documents ever suspected that there would be a drop in demand on the on the grid. They always have this growth in demand of maybe six percent or ten percent per year, and so we're seeing exactly the opposite that was predicted. And it's absolutely the consequence of the unreliability of the power supply that. Um, alternatives have become cheaper and more accessible and easier to implement. And so Eskom's inability really to meet demand is driving consumers to other or customers to other options. And I think that's exactly the background for Oberholzer and his statement is that unless you get on with this, um, Eskom is eventually going to shut down because it Mm -hmm. 
it people will find alternatives and that's a global trend utility corporations all over the world have seen their demise as consumers have switched to self-generation mm. um, i see in, in in relation to what you've said you make quite a nice analogy in that uh, because demand and supply are variable um, it's akin to managing a catering event when you have no idea of how many guests there'll be or how many meals will be delivered so that's I think I think the other thing that also probably underestimated um, with demand um, and be interesting your comment on this is not just the fact that um, people are making alternative arrangements but also of course because the, more businesses are and, and more businesses are, are getting out are out of the economy either because you know they've just they've ha- they've failed they've had to close down or they've chosen to relocate elsewhere. I don't have figures on that. Um, I, you know, I think the resource-intensive industries have not moved mostly mm-hmm. because they are extractive industries um, and they they depend on local power and it's expensive to move. But I mean, you know, we've seen demise in the iron and steel, definitely. Um, so that's been a huge factor. And then not as gold mining, uh, closures in the gold mining sector. But I, I mean, I, I would, it'd be interesting to look at the data. I don't know the data in detail, so I can't really comment on that. And with regard to, uh, my understanding is with regard to the independent power producers, that the whole the program has been very slow in being implemented not because the producers are not on board but because the government is not providing the necessary licensing and approval um, required to get them on board that's exactly correct um although so the first four rounds of the of the renewable energy independent power producers procurement program which is such a mouthful we oh, all God, call it absolutely the, I won't, <laughs> I we all call it the rei4p so for your <laughs> listeners that's what the rei4p is um the first four rounds of that actually went quite smoothly and then there was a five-year hiatus, which was a massive problem because mm-hmm. not only did it interrupt all the supply factors, but it meant that we now end up in the situation where we don't have enough energy in the system. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was the consequence of political interference. So we can thank the present Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy for delaying the implementation of the program. And also at that point, I think Eskom was compliant. You know, the, the, it was a different leadership, a different management. The, it was the years of state capture. Mm. They wanted these big projects um, in which Eskom would invest, and they would then, and then the political elite would be able to benefit from that. And that's exactly what happened. So mm. that's a very dark past in terms of the construction of the energy system, unfortunately. But uh, since then, um, it has been re-implemented. There have been some delays as a consequence of environmental impact studies Mm. um, and licensing. Um, And uh, there's an argument that NERSA is actually a bit of Mm. a a stumbling block or a thorn in the side, or I'm not sure what the best term would be. But just to, just to remind people, that's the electricity regulator, energy regulator. Sorry, yeah, the yeah. National Energy Regulator of South Africa, um, that they are the problem. But we've had, uh, you know, I, I like to say that the PP that's been important in the sector is not power producers, it's political problem. We've mm-hmm. had a political problem 
And maybe that's partly been resolved, but I think there's an ongoing conflict of interest there for government and also for the minister. And that needs to be, we need to get through that. You know, if mm -hmm. we if we want to move forward in the energy sector, we can't have a minister who says that the future is oil and gas because the future is not oil and gas. And he should know that if he's the minister. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's a real problem in our system. Professor Walwyn, thank you very much for joining us. It helps. I think it really helps to get us a broader sense. And, and we need as, as much information as possible just to understand where we are, because, because energy is such a big issue with regard to investment, and investment is such a big issue with regard to growing the economy. So thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure.